One? Yes, we are blessed to be able to gather and to read God's Word together. We'll be in Acts chapter 5. Have you ever heard people say that uh, they're a product of their environment? It may be kind of a uh, an excuse we give, almost, to, or justification for behavior. And it is true that environment and our experiences and people do have an impact on our formation and maybe our choices. It's true that we directly contribute something to the environment. Like when you go to uh, a walking track and there's people who have gone before you and, hey, there's bottles and cans and rubbish along the way. Well, they contributed to their environment. They, they added some of the filth they brought along, right? Some of the rubbish and the litter. And uh, we don't have to be at the mercy of an environment. There's sports teams. They'll, they're, say, the bottom of the ladder, and a new coach comes in. He talks about changing the environment because they don't have to be at the mercy of the, the existing environment. They actually can impact that. And we've seen teams at the bottom of the table or the bottom of the ladder uh, excel through fundamentals and unity and become a really good side. Now, before we all knew Jesus, our hearts and our mind were filled with sins and, and rubbish that we have accumulated through our time on this planet. It was a toxic environment, both in our mind and our heart, poisoned by sin. And Jesus has come into that, and he's made us new, and he's changed us. And so whatever environment we find ourselves in physically we can be an overcomer even as he has overcome. And he has changed us from the inside out, and we too can be uh, changing. And uh, the most foul environment can be purified by the presence of the Holy Spirit. Whenever I travel, I bring luggage with me. I, I think for a man, I tend to pack a little heavy. So I'm told. Um, if I fly, I'll typically check a bag, and I will have my laptop and a backpack or something. Um, and But as we go through this life, you have to say we don't travel so light as that. We we accumulate things, from, and we may carry it with us from before we knew Christ, and even experiences and things that have happened after, things we've been exposed to. It's like we begin, they latch onto us, or we cling onto them, and we carry them with us. And this is why drama follows people. If you notice that, like where there's no people, it says the Bible says, where there is no ox, the trough is clean. Where there are few people, there is less drama, typically. Um, we have that capacity to bring drama with us. And uh, it's not all fun. A lot of it is because of our sin nature that, has, we have allowed it to remain, or haven't been, we haven't known it. We haven't realized that I don't have to carry this anymore. I don't have to cope in that way like I always have. I can be different because Jesus has made me new. And we have this uh, stark example today with Ananias and Sapphira and how God deals with sin. That sin brings judgment and death, even in believers, even in people that are doing the, the right thing um, when we have that baggage of sin within us, God will deal with it. He is compassionate. His mercies fail not. Uh, and that, that passage where it says, it's of his mercy we are not consumed. The previous 22 verses of that chapter were talking about how heavy God's judgment was upon them. And out of that judgment came the realization of how good God is. 
that they weren't just utterly wiped out for their sin. The early church needed this uh, example, and we do too. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who brings to our knowledge uh, sin that's within us and our need to change and, and our inability to change ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that you would do a marvelous work in our hearts, in our fellowship, in the body of Christ throughout the world as we realize that we, are, we must be completely reliant upon you, how, how rotten and ugly sin is, how toxic and awful it is, and how it, it, it separates us from you, but it also means death. And I pray that we would uh, just be those who humble ourselves before you, Lord, and confess our sins freely, for your word says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We rejoice, Lord, today in your grace, in your compassion, and your mercies, because they fail not. And we ask that you would strengthen us and uh, quicken our hearts and minds through your spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we read of people early in the church, how they were selling their lands and their possessions and giving so that the apostles could distribute it to all who had need. And we were introduced to one such man in Acts 4, verse 36 and 37. It says, And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the environment of the early church. It was one that was so generous, so united. People, when they had something, they didn't see it as just theirs. They saw it as everyone's. It was the Lord's thing. They were God's. Therefore, the things they owned were God's things, and they were willing to distribute to any as they had need. They didn't consider anything to be their own. It says they had everything in common, and with great power, they gave evidence of Christ's resurrection and it says, great grace was upon them all. Despite this loving, generous community, not all was well within the community. If people were only products of their environment, there would not have been deceit, greed, and wickedness found among them. And yet, there it was, within the community. So this is a community that's honoring God. Thousands are coming into the church on a daily basis in these times. But not everything was well, as we'll say. Jesus said in Mark 7.15, There is nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile a man. See, we have a heart that brings sin and desire right into a situation. So our environment may provide temptation to sin, but we can be overcomers through Christ. Our problems come from within, quite often, as we'll see in Acts 5, verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias and Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. We were introduced to the son of encouragement, Barnabas, and this chapter starts with the word, but... So there is a contrast here. He had sold property. He brought all the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet. And this contrast is that they had also sold a property, but they did not give all. They claimed to be giving all. It was under the guise of giving all, but they had reserved some. 
So Ananias, it says, kept part of the proceeds for himself, and his wife was privy to it. She was fully aware of what was going down. This word, kept back, in the Greek, it means to secretly, to forcibly confiscate, to embezzle, or steal. So because he had claimed all this was for the Lord, the proceeds were given entirely to God, uh, he was stealing by withholding anything. So this appearance to be giving all when he wasn't, it was hypocritical. It was deceitful. It's interesting to me that the amount that he gave isn't recorded for us, nor is the amount that he kept back for himself, because the fact is, no matter how much he gave or how much he kept back, even if he kept one cent, he was robbing God because he had been claiming that he was giving all. Sapphira was his accomplice. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. I can only imagine being there. One of the young men who are hanging around the apostles and hearing them teach or maybe just finished a prayer meeting. And Ananias comes in and he has a sizable contribution. Maybe eyes were like, whoa, like that is a lot of gold. That is a lot of silver he's laying at their feet. And they're like, impressive, right? They're thinking, wow, this guy's committed. He's giving this to God. And I'm thinking Ananias was hoping that that would be the response of the apostles as well, as he's giving this contribution. Instead of being uh, praised, he's rebuked. Peter was given discernment by the Holy Spirit to know what was happening. This man was not giving to God. He was stealing from God. Pretty crazy, huh? He has this appearance of giving and generosity, but in fact his heart is wrong before the Lord because he kept back for himself part of what he claimed was God's. And so he was robbing God right in front of everyone. Peter, with the Holy Spirit helping him, knew what was going on. And he just asks him again, why? Why did you do this? You had control of it. Wasn't it your own? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? It's fitting that there's no verbal response from Ananias because there was really no excuse for what he was doing, that he would steal from God, that he would try to gain face by saying he's giving all when he refused to do so. He couldn't blame God for testing him or tempting him, uh, and he couldn't blame Satan either because as a child of God, he has power to resist any sin, to flee from temptation. He really only had himself to blame. If you could turn to James chapter 1, verse 13 through 15, will say that God is not the source of temptation in our lives. Peter asked him, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? And we'll see that when our sinful desire couples with opportunity, that's when sin is conceived. James 1 verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil nor does he himself tempt anyone. 
But each one, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when a desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. When I was in uni doing, I forget the class, but they spoke about what fit, the definition of fitness is the ability to reproduce. And they said, um, you know, it takes a fit man and a fit woman to have a child together. If the, if the timing's right and they're both healthy, they will have a child. And so it is with sin. We have this desire within us, and when coupled with opportunity, so there's a temptation or something outside, it only tempts me because there's a desire in my heart to do or to think that thing, to follow through with it, right? The desire comes within me. The thing out there, it's nothing in itself. What tempts me may not tempt you because your desires are different than mine. But he desired affirmation before the people. He was greedy for money. He wanted to gain face before the congregation. He too wanted to be put in a position where he was honored in some way. And so that's what motivated him. Uh, Ananias, this desire is in his heart. Here's an opportunity. And in giving, he could, he could gain both. He could keep some money for himself and gain what he wanted. But sin was conceived in his heart. And for Ananias, this progression was immediate. Praise the Lord for us that it's not always this way. That when we sin, we're not immediately breathing our last. Because if we did, there would not be a person here. I can say for myself, I would not be here today. God is often gracious to give us space to repent. In this case, he was gracious to cause Ananias to breathe his last. We see it in the result. It says, great fear came upon all the all who heard these things. The faster the symptoms of a virus show themselves, if they're obvious signs, the easier it is to contain that, that from being an outbreak. If it happens really quick, really sudden, those people are able to be kept aside from others so they can't transmit the virus anymore, right? Well, in the same way, in the early church, this was a way that God was dealing with sin. He was not going to allow this community to be corrupted because of the deceit and the theft that was happening in the quiet. He brought it out in the open. He wanted public recognition. Ananias did. God dealt with it publicly. What, what happened to Ananias was a lesson to anyone who dabbled in hypocrisy. I bet they thought twice before they brought anything or they said anything to the apostles or the other believers because they knew God knows. God knows what's going on. And did you see that? Did you see what just happened? Everybody would have praised this guy. He had a plaque with his name on it. But no, God exposed that to realize that we are sinners. I don't want to be exposed. So I'm sure that they, they confessed their sins with greater frequency and fervency than ever before. They were examining themselves like they never had before. Because they realize sin is a life and death choice. That if I choose the way of sin, I'm choosing death. The young man that Ananias hoped to be honored by, he was carried, they carried him out and buried him. Guzik wrote, he said, this was a harsh penalty for a sin that seems common today. Some wonder if God was not excessively harsh against Ananias. 
The greater wonder is that God delays his righteous judgment in virtually all of the cases. Ananias received exactly what he deserved. He simply could not live in the atmosphere of purity that marked the church at that time. Let's not misinterpret God's grace and his long-suffering nature as being careless or soft when it comes to sin. The harsh consequences of sin will be experienced by all who sin and their accomplices as well, as we'll see. Now, if someone should drop dead suddenly, it would be foolish of us to, to suspect that they were in some grave error or sin. Who are we to say? If God says it, then that's a different story. And God spoke through Peter in this instance. But we should uh, be thankful that we're given opportunity to learn from Ananias's error rather than having to learn the hard way ourselves. Sometimes we only learn the hard way. Have you realized that? That, that man, like I always have to learn the hard way. I can't just learn the easy way. And I pray that you would learn God's way and then walk in that way. Verse 7, now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Sapphira comes in about three hours later. She has no idea what has transpired. It says Peter answered her. So they're having a conversation. And in the conversation, he says, so what was the amount that you sold that land for, for this amount? Oh, yeah, that was the amount. And he says, man, how is it that you would tempt God by lying to the Holy Spirit? And by the way, it's a great proof verse for the Holy Spirit being God, because in verse 3 he says that he lied to the Holy Spirit, and in verse 4 it says you've not lied to men, but to God. So it shows that God, the Holy Spirit can be lied to, therefore he is God. He is a person of the Trinity. I believe it's clear before Ananias, she was privy to it, right, of what had happened, and they had had a little discussion beforehand that they would get their stories straight. This is how much we sold it for. You know, I'm going to keep this much aside. Their claims may have lined up, but they were equally crooked. And God knew that. As accomplice, the consequences were the same. Now, often that doesn't happen. If there's someone who pulls the trigger, they're not going to do the same amount of time, or they'll be punished more than someone who just drove the car or who help them in some way. But according to God's justice, just as guilty, just as guilty of sin. So the penalty was the same, and she falls down and breathes her last. It says, great fear came upon all the church and all those who heard these things. So not only people in the church heard about it, but people outside the church. People who were thinking, you know, maybe I'll join up. Maybe I'll join this group too. It looks like you know, good security, everyone's sharing, it's generous, it's, it's a great time of gathering together, and I bet they thought twice once this happened. The husband, the wife, within the space of three hours, falling down dead. When we lie, we speak that word against our own lives. 
Lying is abominable in God's sight. It's very common. Some people will say, well, out of necessity, I had to lie. They will justify themselves to say lying was the best course of action here. It's a very little thing, but and the world would likely value how Sapphira uh, covered for her husband, how she was loyal to him, but her loyalty needed to be with God. And she was held accountable by God for her choices and what she said. And in covering for her husband, her own sin was exposed. God's righteous standards are absolute. As I was reading through this and looking at other passages, like, wow, God is so holy and pure and righteous. And because of our sinful nature, because of the environment we've been raised up in, we can be blinded to what sin is, what sin looks like, what it feels like, and what it demands from a righteous judge, which is death. One thing I love about the Bible, your Bible may be an eight-point print, pretty fine, but there's no fine print in the Bible. It's all laid out very clearly. There's no hidden charges for sin. It says, the wages of sin is death. We just don't believe that. <laughs> That's the difference. Some people believe it. Not everyone does. They go, well, you know, nothing's happened to me yet. doesn't seem to be, I seem to be gaining an advantage by, by sin, what the Bible calls sin. Everyone does it anyway. What's the difference? You go to a hotel. You know those little fridges? Now, do you believe that you could just gorge yourself on the snacks and the soda and the booze and not have a bill when you leave? No, they would be checking that. And you're like, what? That wasn't free? No, it wasn't free. There was, there was a whole list there of how much each thing costs, and you ate it all, and you have to pay. That's not a good feeling. Like, oh, I watched that, that movie, and, and now I have to pay 20 bucks. I had no idea that, that it wasn't just included in the price of the room. And that's what people, that's what they're doing with sin. They don't realize that the wages of sin is death. That they're just accruing a, a massive tab. And God is being gracious and giving them time to repent. But there's going to be a day when he will judge them according to what has come out of their mouth and the things that they've done. You and me. Due to our natural blindness and our sinfulness, we, we could be running up that tab and have no idea. Good example, Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Why don't you turn there? This is such a good example of how God's ways are so much more righteous and holy than ours. It just is really mind-boggling. It's more than what we can take in. But here's the truth. We get to read it. Romans 1, 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, 
who, knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only who do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Wow. Now, if you look at any of these, do you think that these deserve the death penalty? To be a whisperer, someone who's gossiping, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, deserving of death. So I'm like nailed. You know, you go like evil-mindedness. Well, how can I help it if I have an evil mind? I know I have evil thoughts from time to time. So yeah, guilty, guilty as sin, deserving of death. Strife. In the King James, that's debate. Boasters. I mean, how many times have we humble bragged or boasted? We didn't even know we did. It says those who practice such things are deserving of death. Not only those who do them, but who approve of those who practice them. And we're like, right on. Yeah, get them back. You're doing the right thing. Oh, guilty as that person who's doing it. Whoa. So now we're, we're doubly damned, in a sense. We, what hope do we have? Um, so I'm just going to keep wo- walking out on the plank just a little further, just to get us thinking. Can you identify with Ananias and Sapphira in any way? Whether you've conceived something in your heart or you've approved of something, you knew of it and you covered for them, because it was the right thing to do, it was the wrong thing, but you felt it was the right thing. Now, it's not my job to pronounce a curse upon anyone, but when you dabble with sin, it's like, it's like putting a venomous snake into your shirt to keep it warm. And you're going to warm it up. It's eventually going to bite you. And there will be pain, and eventually, possibly paralysis and, and death, if not treated. And that's in a Christian's life. Not just the world, not just those who are outside the church, those who are in the church, who have the Holy Spirit within them, when we conceive sin in our heart and we begin to practice such things, there are consequences in our lives. And that's Ananias and Sapphira. Praise the Lord that he's given us a hope through Jesus Christ that we can be forgiven. Even if we've been practicing all of these things, he can wash us clean when we humble ourselves and repent. When we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us. He will save and deliver us. And we can say, search me, Lord, and see if there be any wicked way in me. And he will purify. He will bring those things to light so you can confess them. He'll he'll bring things to our mind that we never even saw before. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4 that the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. Like, it starts with us. We can always point at the world and find sin. We can say, that's wrong. But God wants us to look in our hearts and say, this is wrong. I am wrong. I need to do things God's way. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11 that if we judge ourselves, we will not be judged. So if you've read this list in in Romans chapter 1, you say, nailed, nailed, yes, yeah, I'm guilty of that, guilty of that. Well, if you, you have rightly judged, and if you will confess your sin, you can be forgiven of all. And there will be no record or memory of your sin, because God says, I will remember their sins no more. 
This is good news. This is amazing that we can be washed clean when we trust in God and we repent and we humble ourselves and say, yep, I am guilty and I need forgiveness. God delights to show mercy. It's what he wants to do. It says, I take, he says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked in him who dies. I want you to turn and live. Repent and come to him. I'm so glad that God spells plainly in the Bible what sin is, what the cost of it is, and how we can be forgiven. Because Jesus, when he takes that sin that you've committed on himself, then he doesn't need to judge you according to your sin because Jesus has paid that penalty. When we have sin in our lives, it prevents God from pouring out the blessings that he wants to. I was uh, listening to Edwin Orr's, one of his last messages he ever preached, and it was called, Revival is Like Judgment Day. And, and he says something interesting. He was describing a revival, and he says, it's not like what people think. He says, it was like Judgment Day with weeping and confessing. A lot of people think that revival is a tremendous time of excitement and great roll call of converts. It begins like Judgment Day with the Holy Spirit exposing all the sins of the church. This is something we don't realize. Judgment precedes blessing. If we're faithful to confess our sins, he will forgive us. And then he can pour out blessing upon us and we can grow. Praise the Lord that we won't, as believers, face judgment according to the law. But we will be judged. We will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an answer, an account of our stewardship. Back to Acts 5:12. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. Before the Ananias and Sapphira incident, people were flocking to the church. They were coming in droves, converting to Christ. But this sudden death and the news of it that spread everywhere, there was no, there was no cover up. There was no cover up committee that said, Oh, well, we got to kind of, it's a bit of a scandal. We should keep this quiet. It was common knowledge and people were talking about it. I mean, what would happen if someone came up and laid a stack of bills here and then collapsed dead when they were called out for lying to God. And, and then the wife came in. And we have two bodies here, and the policemen come in, and they start interviewing us one by one. They say, what happened? Oh, well, you know, this no signs of trauma. Uh, yeah, they came to give a gift, and they lied to God, and, and they died. They just suddenly breathed their last. It shocked us. I mean, I'm still pretty shaken about what's happened. They're like, hmm, this is odd. Uh, it would be really strange to have to deal with that. And they weren't covering it up. People were talking about it. People were watching what they said after that. They watched how they gave. They said, if I'm going to say all, it better be all, not just some. People who also had come into the church and were living a lie, almost like Annas and Spira, it's like, you know what? This is too much for me. And they were gone. They weren't going to hang around and take that chance. Peter knew what God knew, and God knows everything. Not that Peter knew everything, but it's like it says none of the rest dared join the apostles. Can you imagine, you know, buddying up to Peter, knowing that this is the kind of thing that could happen to you 
At any time, he could just call you out for something. Um, the word, the rest, it says the rest, none of the rest dare join them. This word is used in scripture in other places about people outside of the church. So if people were in the church, they were, they had fellowship with Peter. But if you were outside the church and you knew the, the power that was demonstrated on that day, you wouldn't dare go there. So there was this reverence, even outside the church, of the power of God at work in this place. God isn't pleased just for us to put on a good show. He cares about what's going on inside of our hearts and in our minds, the things that we think about, the things that we do, the things that no one else knows about, but he knows. He cares about those things. It's not good enough for us to contribute money or service to others while we're living a lie or approving of sin. The leaven of the scribes and Pharisees Jesus identified as hypocrisy. And whether it's not, whether it's known by God, by people or not, it really doesn't matter. God knows it and he sees it. And, and it's easy for us to become a bit lax or sloppy about things God takes really seriously. And this is a wake-up call. This is a wake-up call the early church needed, and this is a wake-up call that we all need, that I need, as I read through the Word. Verse 14, And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Despite the death of Ananias and Sapphira, see what happened. It says believers were increasingly added to the Lord. The church continued to grow. Genuine converts, people are coming to Christ, trusting in him. Multitudes of both men and women. They heard of Christ, they repented, they placed their trust in him. And believers, they brought their sick friends, those who were tormented by spirits, and they would, it said they would line them up on the street just hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on them, which is pretty amazing, that they would be healed by a shadow. Moses, you know, he went and spoke to the Lord, and a veil was put on his face to uh, kind of dim down the glory of the Lord that was radiating from him. Well, even the shadow of Peter that he was casting had God's power to heal upon it. So God's, these signs were happening in the church. People were being healed. And they gathered from the surrounding cities, it says, the sick and those demon-possessed, and all were healed. And this is a picture of what Jesus did. When Jesus was walking the earth and people came to him, he healed them. And we see that power at work in the apostles as well. And we can be like those believers who are inviting others to come to Christ knowing that Jesus has the power to heal them, that he wants them to be forgiven. He wants them to be transformed and made into new people. We also know God's power to work supernaturally is not limited to the apostles. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, 12, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these will he do, because I go to my Father. So with the coming of the Holy Spirit, we are empowered to do things that Jesus uh, did not do by himself. We don't read of his shadow healing anyone. We read of Jesus doing a multitude of miraculous things. John said that they're all written. The world itself could not contain the books that would be written. 
But these have been written that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that believing we may have life on his name. Peter was not a charlatan who offered healing for a price. He did so freely in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm thinking, remember when Moses, when he had the 70 and they were prophesying in the camp and there were a couple that weren't with the group and and Joshua's like, forbid them, my Lord. He says, would to God that everyone prophesied. I wish that everyone had the gift of prophecy. That everyone would be prophesying and exercising spiritual gifts. And how wonderful would it be that even the shadow we cast would have healing properties in the name of Jesus Christ. Not that people's bodies would just be healed for a season, but that they would be saved. They would be converted. The Shunammite woman, she said of the prophet Elisha in 2 Kings 4 now, Look now. I know that this is a holy man of God who passes by us regularly. How do you suppose she knew Elisha was a holy man of God? She hadn't just seen him walk around like he was holy because he was shiny or, uh, you know, he had a halo. It was because of the things he said for God and the things he did in God's name. Here's a man that was bold to speak the word of God and he did things that were miraculous. And she's like, I perceive, because of what I've seen of this guy, he's a holy man of God. He is pure. There's a purity that marks his life that doesn't mark this environment. It doesn't mark the chief priests or the scribes or the, the, the masters of the law. This is a man of God that passes by. And she recognized that. How will people know that you are a man or a woman of God that just may pass by someone regularly? unless you open your mouth for him, unless his uh, works are being done in your life, that there's something in you that is different than the world because he's purified you and you have continued to purify yourself as he is pure, becoming changed more into Christ's image. So to be a man or woman of God, we first must be born again and then through faith walk with him in obedience. And as we do that faithfully, the world will see. Please turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. Well, we'll start in verse 6. We're going to go further. It's an exhortation and a warning. What we are to do. I think in my youth, I, I viewed the desi- the pers- I didn't view it so much as a pursuit of purity or holiness as much as sin avoidance. That was kind of what, what holy living was to me was just trying not to sin, or if I saw sin, to just quit doing it. But God wants us to actually not just put away sin, but to do what's good, to be loving, right? To be merciful. And we see that here, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. As we follow Christ, he gives us gifts, According to the will of the Holy Spirit, he gives us goods, a calling, and we are to be content. 
if you were to if you were a slave and called to Christ as a slave, you weren't to fight for your freedom. You were to continue in that environment to be living for Christ as he is your master. And because he is your master, you view and serve your earthly master in a different way. It'll be the same thing wherever you are, whatever environment you find yourself, that we are to be godly, to live like God, and to be content in him, in your calling, and with the things he's provided for you, not to be greedy. It says here that the love of money, the desire to be rich, foolish and harmful lusts, causes people to stray from the faith and greediness and piercing themselves through. We see that with Ananias and Sapphira. They, they fell. It's like their own desires pierced them, whatever they were, and they bore the brunt of that. Verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things, and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing, which he will manifest in his own time, who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. What are we called to flee from? Foolish and harmful lusts, those desires of our flesh, and to pursue, so that's what not to do and what to put away, and then what to do, what to pursue, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Does the world value gentleness? It doesn't sound like something the world really loves, but it's something that God does. Since we've been bought with a price, all we have and all we are is God's. Let's never be guilty of robbing him or lying to the Spirit, but to walk blameless without spot. If Ananias and Sapphira had been honest, about this is a portion of what we, we uh, the proceeds of the sale, and we felt led to give such and such an amount of it, there would have been no issue. There was no problem with giving part, but they claimed to be giving all. Their premature deaths, they were tragic, preventable. It's an enduring example for us to remember. The fact that we came to Jesus at the beginning, because some of you may not know Jesus. Others, you have come to Jesus and you came to him because you needed saving because you're a sinner. And Jesus came to save sinners. And so there's sin in us that needs to be confessed. When, remember when we read that list of sins, that those who practice such are worthy of death. I just want to bring out those last five. It says undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. These are all the opposite of God's character. So what do we know about God from reading them? Well, because our God is a righteous God, he is a discerning God. He knows everything. He is discerning. His word uh, is able to discern the thoughts and intents of our heart. 
He knows everything already. Number two, he's a trustworthy God. He keeps his promises to those who humble themselves before him. He will keep his word. He is trustworthy, absolutely. You can rely upon him to forgive and to save you. Number three, God is loving. He demonstrated that by sending his own son so that we could be forgiven and live with him forever. So we could be cleansed. God is forgiving. That marks the nature of God. He he wants to forgive us. We have a way of holding grudges and remembering things that have happened to us. But he forgives and he wants to forgive. Finally, our God is merciful. He is a merciful God. He delights to show mercy. I, I just get the picture of him just going, all right. People who have confessed and humbled themselves, he's like rolling his sleeves. All right, now I get to bless you like I really wanted to at the beginning. But there was this sin that was preventing me from doing it. I'm a holy God. He's a trustworthy God. He's a faithful God. But if there's sin in our lives that we are practicing, well, we cut ourselves off from blessing from that, that he has already ordained that's ours. It is so wonderful to have a father who loves us like this, who provides for us. Having been washed from sin, we should keep from sinning. We should avoid it, and we should pursue the things that make for righteousness. We have an opportunity today, starting a new year, tomorrow or tonight, to any baggage that we've been carrying around, any sins that have they easily weigh us down, the weights and the cares of this world, we can lay that all down and we don't have to pick it up again. Let's do that. Let us confess our sin before the Lord. Let's be even as, as Daniel who confessed the sins of the people because he lived in a sinful nation. And we all need the touch of Jesus Christ. We need cleansing. So may that hit home to all of our hearts. God is mighty to save. And he delights to show mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you are a great and awesome God. That it's your compassions, they fail not. Your mercies are new every morning, for great is your faithfulness. And Lord, we are not worthy to be to be called your children through our own efforts, but only by the grace of God and through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would search each one of our hearts and show us if there be wicked ways in us so that we can repent, so we can admit that we have been disobedient, we have been unmerciful, we have been unloving and untrustworthy and undiscerning, and all those things that are abominable to you, Lord, we have done. So I pray, Lord, there would be uh, a great lifting as as we cast our sins before you, as we as we really just humble ourselves, admitting our need, Lord, that you would move in our midst, that you would uh, cause us to walk in your ways and do the things that fully please you. Lord, we are overwhelmed by your power, by your might, and you tell us that we can boldly come into your throne room of grace to find mercy and grace in time of need. Lord, you are an awesome, powerful God, and and you. The power of life and death is in your hands. Thank you for bringing us to this place alive that we can repent and that we can be rid of sins, that we can be washed clean 
and the memory of them put away forever. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. Thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.